This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, a year ago today, an angry mob stormed the Capitol building in Washington in an attempt to halt the democratic process and stop Joe Biden being confirmed as US president. Well, I've been speaking to Robert Moore, the ITV reporter, who's the only broadcaster inside the Capitol as the riot unfolded. He spoke to the rioters on camera as they wreaked havoc. And we ask, what now for American democracy? One expert tells me the US would be on the US's own watch list for a country heading for civil war. So that's cheery. First, though, we kick off as ever with our economist panel. And on a Thursday, it's Night at the Marion. It's Indian Night and James Marion. And James, uh, sources tell me you are sitting in my big chair. Yeah, it's lovely. It's so, so comfy and powerful feeling. <laughs> I've not been in there for ages. They could, but it's been weeks, weeks since I last sat in that. Picture. I'm taking over. If you abandon it much longer, well, um, you're very welcome to. Here. As long as I'm not, as long as I'm not, then asked to write comments about Dostoevsky. Good <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on. As I've brought it up, then let's start with that. Uh, Dostoevsky wrote the book on culture wars, the most James Marriott column <laughs> ever. This. Um, explain because obviously, there's, you know, everywhere you look in the papers, there is uh, the culture wars are raging, whether it's statues or um, Twitter or whatever it might be, James. But your your point is this: this isn't all. None of this is new. Nothing is new. Exactly. Yeah. Oh God. When I, when I, as soon as I finished writing this, I was like, Oh my God, how on earth am I going to try and explain this one on the radio? But um, so I don't know. My my bit my, my basic thing with the culture wars that I always think is, you know, we've all we've kind of seen all this before. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, and I, I, I had this kind of, I was reading this um, this novel by Dostoevsky called Demons, um, a political novel. And there's this amazing bit uh, near the start where two of these characters, um, they're kind of from the provinces. They go to St. Petersburg, the big city. They want to fit in and they want to kind of get along in like political intellectual circles. And the way they realise to do this is they have to start signing all these petitions, denouncing other people in St. Petersburg for having the wrong ideas, for doing these uh, unspecified outrageous acts. They don't really know who they're denouncing. They're just kind of signing their names to whatever comes along. Um, And they start getting along. They start getting invited to parties. uh, And then eventually... Um, they themselves try to make a speech about progressive politics and are themselves denounced and end up being cancelled <laughs> and having to flee St. Petersburg. And I was just like, 
Oh my, I just, there was nothing new. That's Twitter. That's Twitter in the middle of 19th century Russia, um, getting, getting along socially by denouncing people and then getting yourself denounced. Um, and then, I mean, I, there were just, all this stuff started popping out at me. Um, radical, radical students, arguments over privilege. Um, 19th century Russia had its own kind of version of, um, political correctness everybody became obsessed with um with peasants everybody was saying should all art reflect the plight of the peasants it just kind of goes on and on and on and on and i just was like this is absolutely fascinating um i can't quite believe how how similar some of the ideas that just pop up are and just this whole kind of thing i was like yeah there's nothing new we think it's new but it's, uh, you, it's been here before is it is it then that the culture wars aren't about the thing you know the significance of the, the culture what we now describe as the culture wars is not about the subjects themselves it, it's partly human nature and maybe you know maybe i suppose the difference is that the social media twitter means that anyone can now engage in the culture wars you don't need to be the person on the platform at the front of the public meeting or whatever um but it's the it's slightly human nature that there are things which flare up in particular times and that gives us some sense of personal identity and we can align ourselves with other people we think we agree with and and that's just what human yeah. beings are like i think that, i think that's so true because i was reading this um this bit about these people getting denounced in st petersburg for trying to make this progressive speech and uh, fluffing it slightly and saying the wrong thing and you know i mean they find it very traumatizing one of the characters has to go abroad to go on holiday to recover from how traumatizing he finds the experience of being cancelled in 19th century st petersburg uh but you know they'd have gone home to their provincial town and said oh my god it was terrible i went to st petersburg and i got cancelled by by a mob and all the people at home would go what well never heard of that <laughs> about, about what but of course you know twitter just magnifies these things and if you that happened now you go home and they'd be like oh yeah i saw you on i saw you on twitter terrible you know i saw this tweet about you twenty thousand likes or whatever so it just kind of magnifies all these things but i think you're i think you're completely right i think it's i think you're so right it's human nature and you know we're group animals one of the ways of you know getting along in a group is to denounce the bad people who the group has decided they hate and i just think it's probably unavoidable unfortunately twitter is sort of supercharged it into something a bit more horrible. Uh, India, where, where, were you on, where were you on Dostoevsky? I feel very um, shamed by the calibre of James's reading. I really like... I, 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 like, I, like, <laughs> I know, I've, I I've just finished like Michael McIntyre's autobiography. Which yeah, exactly. I like uh, the land yes. of Dostoevsky novel I'm reading at the moment, you know, which kind of suggests that there is a whole kind of queue of them. <laughs> there's always <laughs> one. There's not, there's not, there's not, there's not. I'm, I'm reading it because of the column. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yes, I mean, my, my the, the, the period of... Um, the, the, period, the period in literature that I know a tiny, tiny bit about is um, 19th century French literature. And um, you get a very similar thing in the shift from uh, romanticism at the beginning of that period to realism at the um, end of it. And it's uh, that there are comparable uh, things happening. You know, there are people leaving their comfortable backgrounds to go and uh, attach themselves to a worthy cause and that going wrong and then being caught out or them changing their mind. I mean, the, the, the thing with social media is it's all you don't have to make any effort it's incredibly easily accessible. You don't have to march away from your village to the big city or vice versa. You can just press send or post. Um, so the authenticity behind the emotion is, I think, you know, quite often bogus, um, unlike the authenticity of the emotions in 19th century um, Russian literature. 
I also wonder whether, um, when you sort of took, you're right, the, the sort of the the ease with which you can post this stuff, but also the fact you're not doing it in front of someone. That the the natural human reaction to maybe think twice. Well, I, sometimes anyway, think twice before opening your mouth because there's someone sitting in front of you who might say, "Hang on a minute, that's nonsense, isn't it?" Was what you can do, of course, is post nonsense on Twitter, you know, yeah, and, and you then walk away from it or it. mute it, and you don't. Yes, exactly, and it's um, whereas the the sort of the the human uh, in you might sort of uh, uh, row back a bit or just be a bit more careful if there's another human being in the room with you when you say that daft thing. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you're you're. I think what you're really doing when you're posting on social media is aligning yourself to a tribe. And as long as you're seen to be doing that, the content or the intellectual validity or the or the strength or logic or rationale of your argument is very rarely examined. It's enough to go, I'm over here with these people and that's it. That's all that's required, yeah. really. Yeah, no, yeah, it's... Um... Well, there we are. Turns out, turns out, it's nothing new, James. It's nothing new, and exactly, um, we look we look forward to this this new feature, James's Dostoevsky of the week. <laughs> it's one um... of my favourite James columns of all time. That column, it's absolutely fantastic. If anybody oh, hasn't read it, really I nice really thank you. strongly direct them to it. That's very kind. Hundred percent, and also also James reads them so we don't have to, and then we can just go around <laughs> dropping into conversation. <laughs> of course, all of this, none of this is new, as Dostoevsky wrote about it. Um, uh, let's let's talk about something which, which is a bit more uh, bang up to date, and that's the, although it's it is also slightly the the one of the battlegrounds of um of of a culture war of sorts, and that's vaccinations and the idea of making them compulsory. And we've seen this sort of you know obviously um, uh, Novak Djokovic is a is a is a uh, case in point, you know, he's just been kicked out of Australia because he, he won't abide by the rules on, on having vaccinations. Uh, in France, you've got Emmanuel Macron saying he's going to um, uh, annoy people um, if they annoy the unvaccinated, make life very difficult for them. He swore, basically, which I was, I was going to, I'm not going to repeat. In Italy, they're making comp- uh, vaccinations compulsory for over 50s. Boris Johnson said we needed a national debate on it and then rode back on it. But now we seem to be sort of inching towards it. Where were you? I'm a bit torn on this, I have to say. Where where were you on this, India? Um, I don't think that they should be made compulsory because I think we live in a free country. And so that's one thing. But I do think that there's been a kind of change in public opinion about the vaccinated. I think everybody now feels rather like Emmanuel Macron. You know, everybody is becoming... What was kind of weary, eye-rolling tolerance is now that the end is in sight. We keep being told the end is in sight and just to kind of hang on for a bit longer and everything will be more or less fine. The idea that the, the obstacle in the path to everything being fine is these people who refuse to be vaccinated. I think that I think people are feeling much angrier about that. People, I think people think, oh, come on, just get it done and then we'll all be fine. You know, there's a problem. There's a solution. Take the solution. So I am not, but I'm still not in favour of making them mandatory. But I do think we might squeeze the unvaccinated a bit more. You know, in France, you can't go out for dinner without showing your pass to to, to, to a restaurant. I don't see what's so wrong with that. I'm kind of in favour of a bit of bit of poking. <laughs> well, poke, maybe we should poke them with a with a. Um... With a needle, with a syringe, and then there's two. But, well, two, yes, but... perhaps, perhaps they could fall <laughs> conveniently onto 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 a prepped syringe. It's just really annoying. I think at this point, that's what everybody is feeling. You know, just like please get on with it, please do it, and then we can all move on. It's and boring. That, I suppose that's the point. That's the point. 
isn't it, Joe? Is that some people are now wearing it? I totally get if you've got medical reasons, you know, and and everyone's like, oh, what about if you've got medical exemptions? That is one thing. But there are clearly people choosing not to have a vaccine, in part, and this is true of lots of conspiracy theorists and and so on. You know, it makes you more interesting if you're one of the minority and you're taking mm-hmm. a stand and come on, sheeple. Yeah, I you know you know, really you know something here. that everybody else hasn't cottoned on yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, you're too, Corbyn, too basically. Yay, well done. Yeah, um, and but but then the but then the point, Joe, is is that we can't the rest of us shouldn't be held hostage almost but you know part of the reason why hospitals are really struggling mm. now is because those people haven't had the jab uh, yeah. and part of the reason why there are restrictions on where you can go um, what you can do and who you can see is because it's not because of me it's because of the people who haven't had the jab so i'm, so I'm slightly torn about how far we should poke these people what do you yeah. think no I, I i feel totally torn too because on the one hand it's a completely safe beneficial public health intervention that can only bring good why shouldn't everybody have it the thing i guess that gives me pause for thought is you know tactically if you want to get the most the most number of people vaccinated uh possible with the least controversy and pushback if you make it compulsory do you then begin to sort of start you know, um, feeding into the narrative that a lot of anti-faxxers have about mm-hmm. it's a matter of state control, the state is trying to control you, and do you just do you just inevitably make the situation worse? Whereas if, as India says, you kind of squeeze people, you have vaccine passports, you make life a bit harder for people who won't have the vaccine, they will then kind of get it and they'll get it out of their own free will and they won't feel, co- they won't feel they've been forced into it and therefore you kind of begin to, um, you know, you begin to sort of take some of the energy out of that movement. Whereas if you force people to have it, you know, does that just kind of supercharge these conspiracy theories? That would be my only thought. And then, you know, if you're trying to force people, how do you force them? You know, will they, if they still just don't get it, what happens then? And does that actually improve vaccination rates? I, th- I think I was reading something somewhere um, that said, you know, mandatory vaccination isn't necessary, doesn't, wouldn't necessarily improve the rates of vaccination relative to, you know, squeezing them, uh, as India puts it. Yeah, and I suppose that that's. But I mean, even when there's been arguments about our vaccine, our passports, you working in Scotland, you know, um, uh, the, the the infection rate was was basically the same as as England. But actually, their uh, vaccine rates did go. Where where countries have done this, as far as I know, and I'll be proof for, uh, the actual number of people going and getting the jab has gone up. And then you have this weird group of people, basically foghorns on certain parts of the media, getting absolutely furious about this, while also saying, "Whatever, well, I've had my jab." Um, and you said, "Well, why are you defa- Why are you going to bat yeah. for people who just won't follow logic?" And anyway, um, uh, let's move to another, another, the ultimate culture war uh, fun. Pets. Uh, the Pope has criticised pet owners who prefer cats and dogs over children, branding them selfish. And I've read this thinking I could name about ten friends uh, who don't have children who do treat their dog like a child, which I think you know fine it's good for them uh, what do you think about this uh india it's this weird sort of because on the one hand we're told we need fewer children because uh you know population growth and climate change and all that and then the other side is we need more children because we need people to, to look after the all the old people we've, we've now got um is that what we should be worried about rather than getting cats and dogs I think it's a really strange thing for the Pope to say because the Pope I like this Pope he says lots of very sensible things it seems to me and he seems kind-hearted and liberal and says good things and I don't know maybe he got maybe he had a hamster that bit him or something as a child um, I, think it's a, I think it's a I think it's a very odd thing to say and I think it's a cruel thing to say because look I have animals and children and you know there we are it's not neither good or not good um but 
the idea that uh, the idea that people who can't have children or who are responsible enough to know that they can't have children at the moment, uh, the, the idea that the idea that they're being selfish is really ugly and unkind, and I don't really understand it. I know several people who can't have children who love their pets, who are devoted, love their pets obsessively, who who rely on their pets for companionship, and you know, I mean, dogs and cats. Well, dogs more than cats in my view but anyway let's not go there but you know make fantastic <laughs> companions they're lovely they're life enhancers and I, the idea that, that that would be kind of judged as a moral act the ownership of them is weird to me I don't know what he's on about frankly <laughs> James, it also struck me there's a particular irony about the Pope yes and it's the Pope lecturing exactly. other it's people about not Shush. yes about not having children yeah that that's that struck me too um, I just, I mean, the good thing, it's clearly a very fun thing about the Pope is you can have these random grudges against pets. Because it's not the first time he's spoken <laughs> out about this. I was reading, I think a few years ago, he said that people having pets was like a sign of the degeneracy of civilization or something. Um, and of course, you know, if you're any other sort of octogenarian <laughs> and you say this, everyone goes, all right, granddad. But if you're the Pope, you know, you can have these sort of, you just have these little hobby horses. You hate cats and dogs and you can get it into the I newspapers. I really, dogs. I quite like, I think it's kind of, if I was the Pope, that's exactly what I'd be doing with it. I would be like, don't like pets and i will pronounce about this and i'm the pope people have to listen to me and it must be it must be quite fun to uh you know get to sort of <laughs> random cranky things you get cross about people have to listen to you i think it's, i agree I think with about, have... about cats but um that's a, that's a, that's a separate argument probably to have um just fine before i let you go we're talking about people who've been caught on camera this there's a brilliant story about the the mafia boss he's been on the run for 20 years and he's been arrested after he was caught by the google street view camera chatting outside of greengrocers either of you ever been caught out on camera no i don't think so i'm racking my brain but i i, I so. only have the most boring possible story which is that when i was at university there was um there was this uh, sort of the university newspaper used to go around and film people and interview people coming out of clubs and they'd all say and do ridiculous things and generally embarrass themselves on camera. And I was once told that I was on one of these and I was like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? Uh, I looked it up on YouTube and I was in the background of one uh, walking home from the library with a pile of books, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, which was very characteristic. That is the most on brand James Marriott <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's perfect. That's exactly what that's exactly what we wanted. Uh, India hasn't been caught out at all, and James was caught with a pile of books. India Night and James Marriott there. Of course, you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesfedbox. Up next, we revisit the riot in the capital. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Today marks the first anniversary of the Capitol riots, which saw supporters of Donald Trump violently storm the Capitol, claiming that the presidential election was fraudulently stolen from him. The events shocked the world. We're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try and give... The Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything. Not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans... The weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Arizona that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic? President I, Paul Gosar from Arizona. What Sport. purpose does the gentleman from Arizona run? I rise up for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object. Thank you. We're not going to let them. Um, I think that they're going to bully us out of an election. You know, a lot of people here believe that Donald Trump won and that there's evidence to prove it. I was seeing some tear gas being shot and people trying to break in. And I talked to a lot of people who said that they got inside the building and then the cops cleared them out after they got inside and they got pepper sprayed and, you know, thrown out and people are trying to get in again. And there's just a lot of back and forth between riot police and protesters. the rule of law, restore the Constitution, then trampled over. Our democracy is under unprecedented assault, unlike anything we've seen in modern times. An assault on the citadel of liberty, the capital itself. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it especially the other side. But you have to go home now. Extraordinary reliving those events from a year ago. Well, so America is still very much deeply divided. Opinion polls showing a majority of Americans expect a repeat of what happened last year in the next few years. Uh, just half of those polled in, in one poll for Axios uh, found uh, that uh, just half of those say they now have faith in American democracy. 
President Biden is due to make a speech about what happened later today. Donald Trump was due to hold a speech, but cancelled it, citing media bias. Will either of them be interested in reconciling the immense political divide in America? In a moment, we'll speak to two US-based experts about whether the United States is tipping into a civil war. But first of all, let's go back to what happened uh, exactly a year ago today. Piece together the events of the day and what it was like to be inside the Capitol building. Jamie Roberts directed the brilliant documentary Four Hours at the Capitol for HBO and the BBC, which used footage filmed by the rioters themselves to tell the story of what happened. And Robert Moore was part of the reporting team. He's the Washington correspondent for ITV. He was the only broadcaster inside the Capitol building, swept up in the riot, filming and interviewing the mob in real time. I caught up with them both and asked Robert to explain how January the 6th unfolded. The chronology was kind of almost uh, inevitable. There was a degree of inevitability about it. I mean, we turned up, first of all, at the Ellipse, which is just uh, on the the National Mall side of the White House, where Donald Trump, uh, the outgoing president, was giving a a, a speech to his most diehard supporters. And it was there that he gave those sort of fateful words, suggestion that they should march on the Capitol, even implying that he would do so with them. And sure enough, you know, they listened to their leader. And as soon as he'd finished speaking, uh, groups of, of, of the most sort of vehement Trump supporters began marching uh, onto Capitol Hill and on to Congress, where, of course, the presidential election was being certified at that moment. And then, you know, we found ourselves at the very front of the crowd, the mob, as it was about to become. And we found ourselves being pushed quite literally over the threshold of Congress amid a an absolute kaleidoscope of anger and grievances and different issues being shouted out by Trump supporters. And then suddenly there we were, finding ourselves in the corridors of power with a Trump mob that was absolutely determined to try and reverse a democratic presidential US election. So the kind of audacity of it, the sort of the brazenness of it was absolutely stunning as we found ourselves sort of immersed in this uh, furious mob. What's going through your mind at that point as a both as a journalist, but also as a sort of human being, a a small D Democrat, uh, seeing this sort of play out? Because, uh, you know, you've been a journalist for a long time. You've seen lots of things. But to find yourself literally in the middle of this extraordinary scene. And actually, it was pretty unsafe as well from your perspective. For sure. I mean, look, the defining moment for us was when we were kind of surrounded by a mob, recognising that, you know, it despised, held in contempt the media. You know, there was a virulently strong anti-media sentiment in the crowd, feeling that their story, their narrative, their perspective had been completely ignored, not just for days or weeks, but for years. Uh, And that, of course, had been sort of inflamed further by the anti-media talk at every single Donald Trump rally. So the anger was palpable. The mood was viscerally anti-press. And we found ourselves in the middle of it. So our first kind of concern was our own safety. But we also recognized and you know, in the business, Matt, as you know better than anybody, you know, we calibrate risk and reward. And we recognized the risk was considerable, but the reward was immense too, because we were able to interview in real time you know, people who were ransacking the inner sanctum of American democracy. So, uh, you know, we felt it was definitely worth pressing on because we recognised that it was a uh, historic moment uh, in which an angry mob was quite literally marching on Nancy Pelosi's office and was looking for the chamber, looking to do nothing less than reverse 
a democratic election. So the reward was great. And so we just filmed it as, as we would do, as sort of fly on the wall journalists trying to tell a story and bring it back to British viewers. I mean, and actually bring it to viewers around the world because you, as the only crew who sort of found themselves in the thick of it in that way, it became such a, an incredible piece of, of journalism which required uh, bravery on your part. Let's bring um, Jamie Robertson now, director of the, the documentary Four Hours at the Capitol, where you tried to piece together exactly what happened, um, Jamie, actually relying on, on the, in part on the, the footage that, that Robert and his team captured on the day. Yes, there was one of the significant things about the day was that there were so many people filming. I mean, and it was Robert and his crew were the only professional crew in there, but there was uh, almost everybody seemed to have a camera, a GoPro, um, plus there was CCTV. So as the rampage happened, uh, you know, it was possible to actually kind of, on a granular level, actually go through exactly what were the steps of the people who were involved and, and find some of those people to be able to tell their story from all sides. So from the police officers, the members of Congress and, um, and the rioters themselves to really kind of put a picture together of the, of the situation. Um, but yeah, I think we, we ended up getting hundreds of terabytes of material. And I mean, there's, there's more of it. You just go through it. I think I said to Robert, Robert just as we came on, you know, we, I actually found a bit of material where Robert was talking down a mob trying to attack him. And a similar mob just before that had, uh, had actually attacked a New York Times female, New York Times female photographer. Uh, ripped her camera off her and, and attacked her physically. So the violence in there was really palpable and it's all over the film. So I think anybody that um, can't doesn't see that is uh, is living in a different reality, really. I mean, from a documentary maker's perspective, normally, you know, there might be a, a, a major news event that happens and you, you sort of have to piece it together later with the interviews with eyewitnesses and that sort of thing. The fact that everyone has a phone on them, but also, crucially, the people breaking the law wanted to film it and circulate it's a very, you know it's quite an unusual you know if it was a a bank robbery the people carrying out the bank robbery don't normally film themselves and then pass it on to the media to advertise the fact yeah i mean yeah there's there's writers who are actually kind of commentating their own moves as they're as they're moving through the building there's people you know there's four angles of uh when ashley babbitt the woman who was shot by the police officer you know there's four angles of that at least in, in the lead up to that and when it actually happened so it's quite amazing that there's still, it's still up for debate and there's still argument as to what really happened when all of this evidence is out there. But it must be the most filmed event in history. I, I think it must be. Uh, Robert, you're, you're nodding there. I, I, I wonder whether when you look back on it now, and I don't know if you've seen um, Jamie's documentary or maybe you've seen other, other footage of it. Does, it. does it feel like a bigger thing than it felt when you were in the centre of it? We're now 12 months on from uh, January the 6th. What do you feel about it now compared to how you felt when you were in the, the middle of it all? Well, first of all, let me tip my hat to the superb documentarian that is Jamie. I mean, I, I'm so impressed with how he's kind of put uh, the whole story together, you know, because it is essentially a massive video jigsaw. Um, and uh, it is extraordinary how much video, uh, you know, there is a, of that event, as you say, you know. Uh, it, it, in a way, uh, Matt, it plays to the point that was very strong uh, for those of us in the mob at the time, which is that they had no sense that they were doing anything wrong. They had a profound sense that actually this was their real estate. This was, as they chanted, this is our house. They didn't regard themselves as coup makers or insurrectionists. They regarded themselves in real time as those who were defending democracy, those who were uh, trying to overturn a fraudulent election result. So, you know, this level of conspiracy theory that they hold is unbelievably ingrained. 
And so this leads to the whole sense that I have a year on to answer your question directly about how the, you know, the United States is still in this level of sort of dysfunctionality about its politics. In uh, uh, you know, So many Trump supporters are still in deep denial. You know, polling has been out in the last few days suggesting that a large majority, over 70 percent of Republicans, still believe that the election of 2020 was a fraud. In other words, this is the key point to understand even now is large numbers of Americans think that it wasn't January the 6th that was the coup, it was November the 3rd. In other words, it was the election that was the outrage, not the the attempted insurrection on January the 6th. And that currency is still completely live in America today. And that's why, you know, it still remains on the precipice, if you like. I mean, there's been a lot of sort of narrative that January the 6th was kind of a rehearsal, if you like. It was a practice run for 2024. And that sense, I think, is very real that the danger to American democracy, the danger to the republic, if you like, is sort of, you know, is very real indeed. It's Yeah, it's fascinating, if utterly depressing. The, on the one, you know, half of Half of America thinks it was a total outrage and others think it was a triumph and, the, you know, absolutely the right thing to do. Um, Jamie, just fine. Just you talked about how much footage there was. Talk me through the process, because, I mean, you know, to some extent in the production, Robert had it easy. The camera was running. He captured it all. He stuck it on the telly. Um, what how do you go through all of those hours and hours and hours? Do you watch it all? Yeah, first of all, I'll say Robert did not have it easy. That, you know, he went in there. That's, that's <laughs> I said experience. only in the production. I'm not in any way suggesting that I uh, want to be I get, in there. I know what you mean. But, but he, uh, <laughs> um, no, but yeah, I mean, I, myself and a couple of colleagues, we went through all of it, logging it, um, you know, sometimes uh, high speed, but just logging all the moments and basically triangulating what was happening. Because really what we wanted to do is have eyewitnesses speaking to the moments that they're actually on film and then fact-checking everything they're saying. So really, it could, the facts could not be denied because this is, you know, fake news was something that hover, hovers over this story to this day. You know, President Trump still claims that people were hugging and kissing inside the Capitol. And we obviously, most right-minded people think that that isn't the case. So we really wanted in this film to kind of to dig that out and show show what really happened and the fact that there was, there was ultra-violence occurring in there and also could have been much, much worse. So that footage really was, that was our evidence that, uh, that proves to people that what people are saying in their testimony is actually true. Uh, where does this go now then, Robert? As Jamie mentions there, Donald Trump, you know, still still saying exactly what he was saying this time last year. Where does this, where, what happens next in America? Well, I think there are two big questions sort of, sort of arching over this anniversary and, and this sort of, you know, remarkable day as sort of Congress comes together to reflect on what happened a year ago. One is who can, ends up controlling uh, Congress by the end of this year. In other words, what's going to be the outcome of the uh, of the of this 2022 uh, uh, midterm elections? You know, will the Republicans regain control both of the House and the Senate? That's big. One big question. But the the really kind of the the one that is got America holding its breath right now is the question of whether Donald Trump is going to run again in 2024, and that suggests and and all the indications are that he will do. That this was what happened a year ago was potentially just a rerun for for sort of political. Uh, anger, debate, potentially, you know, uh, more than that, political violence on a scale that uh, will potentially make last year's uh, look like just a picnic. Well, on that cheerful note, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Robert Moore, ITV's uh, Washington correspondent and uh, Jamie Roberts, documentary maker of uh, Four Hours uh, at the Capitol. Really good to speak to you both. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Now let's try and understand the impact of what happened. We'll hear from Barbara Walter, a professor of international relations and author of the book, how civil wars start. 
and Carlton Larson, a professor of constitutional law. And I started by asking Carlton whether the rioters could be guilty of treason. So under the US Constitution, um, treason is limited to uh, levying war against the United States um, or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. It's the only crime that's actually defined directly in our Constitution. And the specific crime we'd be looking at here is levying war against the United States. Um, And that has a very old history that the terms come directly from English law from the statute of the 1350s. Um, And that in the 18th century was generally understood to include armed uprisings um, to overthrow the government or to obstruct the operation of particular laws. And so in the 1790s, we we saw prosecutions of of, uh, tax protesters in the Whiskey Rebellion and Freezes Rebellion for essentially armed insurrections that sought to obstruct uh, federal law. So there's a very good argument that under the 18th century understanding of treason, uh, an armed attack on the Capitol uh, with the purpose of obstructing uh, the Electoral Count Act um, is an act of treason against the United States. Now, it's a little more complicated than that because in the 19th century, there's case law that suggests you have to have an attempt to overthrow the government entirely. And then that raises a very interesting question of whether this situation would count as an attempt to overthrow the government or not. And I think that's a very hard issue. And so it's unlikely that we will see treason charges brought against the protesters because there's so many other crimes they potentially could be charged with. I suppose the the fact we're even having this conversation is it goes to the heart of the issue. that This was not a riot in a supermarket or a shopping mall or a park. This was... A, a political act that went to the heart of democracy. Yes, exactly right. I mean, and, and that the sort of the marching on the Capitol um, was always sort of seen as kind of a classic example um, of treason by levying war, um, whether you got there or not. In some ways, it was it was it was the it was the uh, the marching um, that that did it. And and let's bring Barbara Walter in now. Barbara, your uh, book is called How Civil Wars Start, a nice cheery um, uh, sort of manual. And you've, you've, you've studied civil wars, unrest in countries around the world and sort of tried to piece together the, the jigsaw pieces almost, which, which, which show that that's a, that's a path a country is on. Before we come to whether or not America is on that path, just give me some of those pieces. What are typically the sort of things we see in countries which ultimately end up in a situation of, of, of a civil war? Yeah. So for the last four years, I've been on um, a task force called the Political Instability Task Force, and it's uh, run by the U.S. government. And um, it's been around since the early 1990s. And the tasks that they gave um, for the mix of academics and data analysts that were on this uh, task force was to come up with a predictive model of um, uh, what helps to predict whether a country experiences political instability and and political violence. And we um, created a model It included Uh, over 50 different variables, variables that we thought might be important, like poverty, like ethnic diversity, things like that. And we found out that only two factors came out on top. So two factors predicted better than um, anything else, um, which countries were likely to experience um, political violence uh, and, and instability. And the first one was what we called anocracy. Um, It's a fancy word for partial democracy. It's whether a country is neither a full democracy or a full autocracy, it's something in between. And the second one was whether a country's 
politics had devolved into racial identity politics. So whether political parties had formed around um, ethnicity, religion, or race, um, and whether one of those parties, one or both of those parties, <clears throat> was what we call predatory. They were seeking political power with the goal of excluding everyone else. Now, again, the task force never looked at the United States. We, we were- So where were you looking at? Which were the countries? Give me that the flavor of the countries. Every country around the world we're looking at. Um, and if a country had these two factors, we put them on a watch list. And we just watched to see what was going on there. Um, and of course, um, over the last five years, I've, as I've been watching what's happening here in the United States, knowing what I know about these two factors, I became increasingly worried. So the United States, um, our democracy has declined dramatically since 2016. And in fact, based on the data set we used to define anocracy, it became an anocracy for the first time in January of last year. The United States, by the definition we use, is an anocracy. Um, and then so if the you United States is on the United States watch list. No, 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 no. The, oh, the okay. United, no, the, <laughs> this task force is not allowed to observe the United States at all. This okay. is me as a independent citizen, as a scholar, um, as a scholar um, applying what what we so know. Would, if, if the United States was a, a, a separate country, it would be the conditions of the United States. Would it yes. be on the watch list? I suspect it would. Yes. I mean, that's um, and then bad, if you look at it? our if you look at our our, our politics, um, you know, back as late as 2008, uh, white American voters were split almost equally between the Republican and the Democratic Party. And in fact, if you were white working class here in the United States, the Democratic Party was a better home for you. Um, it, it emphasized social policies It emphasized a whole series of policies that benefited you economically. That has shifted since then to the point where 90% of the Republican Party here in the United States is now white um, and, um, and is interested in acquiring power with the express purpose of locking out everybody else. So, so you're seeing these two factors here in the United States today. And what threat does that pose then, uh, Carlton, to the Constitution? It's lasted for such a long time. You know, the, America's had ups and downs, but we're talking now not about a bad president who gets removed from the White House or whatever, but it's the it's the scaffolding around which all that stuff has happened in the past. Yeah, well, I mean, we've often had periods in our country when you know, we, we are politically divided. That's not necessarily anything new, but we all have generally agreed on there's a framework in which these disputes are resolved <clears throat> and that is that we have fair and open elections and that the losers concede um, and i think that's really the the biggest threat i see going forward i mean we can prevent another january 6 with better barricades and we can secure the capital I, mean, I don't think we're likely to have people storming the capital again the far bigger threat is actually what's happening inside the capital if you have members of congress who simply refuse to accept um, election results, you want to toss out the votes of states, or what's happening in state houses, if they may decide to take the vote away from the people and send their own slate of electors, or simply refuse to certify votes um, of people they, they disagree with. I think that's the, the bigger threat. And I'm far more worried now than I was a year ago. Um, you know, a year and a half ago, I thought, well, we can, you know, we'll have the election and that's that. 
now I'm just not so sure that elections are the end of the game. Now it's post-election is almost as important as the election itself. Will the election actually translate um, into the winner being uh, seated? I just want to finally ask you both. Um, it was a straightforward question, which I suspect there's a complicated answer. Where do you think America is, is headed? What is the ultimate path that we are on and what could be done to, to change that if it's a path you think it shouldn't be on? I'll start with you first, Carl. Well, at the end of the day, I'm an optimist. I, I think that the country is, you know, is a country with a, a tremendous future if we get some things right. Um, but we have enormous challenges um, uh, in the short term. And I think that requires getting our election machinery um, correct. I think it means countering lots of, of disinformation and trying to do something um, to bridge this uh, political divide where people are not just have sort of opposing political views, but almost have completely opposing facts and live in entirely different worlds uh, based on what they get from social media or from other sources. And I think that's going to be an enormous problem um, to try to bring people together across that divide. Um, finally, then, Barbara, I know that you've talked about how your, your fear that it's not just that there's a threat of, you know, civil war. There are actually quite a lot of people in America who are quite excited about that uh, prospect. How, how do you stop that? How do you get the genie back in the bottle? <clears throat> well, we know the warning signs of a civil war. Um, we, meaning the experts, know what the warning signs are. That's a huge advantage. And if we can, if we can communicate this to um, the average citizen, so that they're aware that they're going down a dangerous path, um, and that that they can no longer be complacent complacent about the decline of their democracy and the danger of this divisiveness, um, then we'll have a chance to turn, turn things around. And, and I think um, voters, individuals and voters here in the United States still have a lot, a lot of power. In the last election, we had record turnout and still 80 million Americans um, uh, didn't vote. So if we can um, get Americans to realize that what's happening is actually quite dangerous. It's not just a matter of, of um, one party playing um, hardball, but it's really a matter of us going down a path that could potentially destroy our country. Um, then I do think they'll wake up and they'll begin to become more active and they will, they will work to take their power back. Well, let's try and end on that slightly more upbeat, positive note. Uh, <laughs> Barbara Walter and Carlton Lawson, thanks both for joining us on Times Radio. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.